I arrived in America about two weeks before Martin Luther King's march on Washington and uh, was really astounded uh, to find that many of the evangelicals who, you know, who told me that uh, once we were saved, we were all going to go to heaven and uh, we must love each other, that I could not attend their churches. Hey, it's me, Chance, and thanks for listening to our conversation with Dr. Frank Douglas. Dr. Douglas grew up in British Guiana with his mother and four siblings. His love of education earned him a Fulbright scholarship, and he came to America during the turbulent years of the 1960s. He worked at Sibagagi in Aventis and was involved in the pharmaceutical industry where he spearheaded research and development of drugs to treat tuberculosis, arthritis, diabetes, among others. Douglas has received the Golden Pharmaceutical Research and Development Director of the Year Award in 2001 and 2004, the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Organization for the Professional Advancement of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers in 2002, the Black History Maker Award in 2007, the Jeffrey Bean Foundation and GQ Rockstar of Science, and the Odyssey Award from the Center of Medicine and the Public Interest in 2010, and finally, the Caribbean Heritage Award for Entrepreneurship in 2011. Douglas wrote A Free Man from a Black Stream in honor of all those who have helped him along his way. Stay tuned for our conversation next week where we're going to be talking about late-stage capitalism in America and if we're beginning to see the limits of free market capitalism. Currently, I'm seeking out an economics professor who might like to have that discussion with us. If you'd like to share your support, please rate and review us on iTunes and soon on Spotify. Check out Punk Dash Journalism where you can find all of our content and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Thank you again very much for joining us, Dr. Douglas. I was explaining before we started that I came across you and I learned about you uh, from a book that I was advertised to me called A Free Man from a Black Stream. Yeah, Defining Moments of a Free Man from a Black Stream. The, on your bio, it says that it's in honor of all those who have helped, helped you along your journey. So as far as your journey is concerned, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your research and how this has led up to the content of your book as it relates to racial issues and critical race theory. Okay, well, my, my book is a, is a, a memoir, uh, and I was born in, George, in Georgetown, what was British Guyana, is now Guyana, Georgetown, Guyana. Mm -hmm. uh, grew up in uh, very uh, uh, poor circumstances. And uh, in my book, I uh, describe those circumstances and uh, how uh, focusing uh, one hand on my uh, academics in high school and uh, two, my involvement in evangelical church, how those two things developed a set of core values which have stayed with me, but which were very important to me when at age 20 I received the Fulbright uh, scholarship uh, as an undergraduate uh, to Lehigh University. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1963. I arrived in America about two weeks before Martin Luther King's march on Washington and uh, was really astounded uh, to find that many of the evangelicals who, you know, who told me that... Uh, once we were saved, we were all going to go to heaven and uh, we must love each other that I could not attend their churches.
Wow. And uh, <laughs> that was my uh, introduction in a real sense uh, to discrimination in America, which really, uh, I was really astounded by it. Yeah, what a slap in the face, huh? What well, a... it really was. I, 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 I was perplexed by it, I was astounded. Uh, by it, you know, and then that same year, of course, the the, the three young uh, girls who were killed in the church in Alabama and Medgar Evers. Uh, and so I was just very astounded. And when I went to uh, Lehigh, uh, there were some nice uh, uh, colleagues there. Uh, there were only four blacks, actually. Three of us were foreign, and there was one uh, black American. Uh, and I actually noted the, the way that they treated him, which was, a, was, was different from the way they treated me once I spoke and they recognized uh, that uh, uh, I was not an American black. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also uh, dealing with uh, uh, racism from, from, a, from some of my professors uh, who gave me a lower grade than I had actually earned a couple of times they had actually put the the, uh, the results uh, <clears throat> of the uh, of the finals they had put the answers up on the board so I could see my answers and as I said to the one professor when I went to see him I said I'm just actually amazed because I know my answers are no different from what you have on the board mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> and yet you're giving me a C in this course. <laughs> I, I before you before you came to the United States, did you have much of an idea of the level of di discrimination that was taking place? No, no I had absolutely no idea. Was, wow! To me, I you know I was just stunned by this. You know, for me, America was this uh, you know wonderful place uh, where people. Uh, were very uh, open. They helped others in the rest of the of the world. So I assume that was the same uh, in America. Uh, and you know, here I was coming to America on a full paid uh, scholarship. Mm -hmm. You know, from Fulbright, and uh, uh, so that's this was my vision uh, of America. And then I came and uh, found. You know, I went to uh, I was in Connecticut at the time. The first couple of weeks I was here, I was on a program at Yale. Uh, and I, I went to this, uh, what turned out to be a bar. I didn't realize it was a bar, but anyhow, you know, they made it very clear that I was not welcome. They refused to serve me. Wow, what you a know, This was in New Haven. And and this and this at the time is a more liberal part of the country. Uh, I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. I mean, do you would do you think you would have even? had an opportunity at getting a job at a university in the South at that time? Oh, I absolutely doubt it. Oh, I absolutely doubt it. As a matter of fact, you know, it was just just prior to that, um, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Meredith and others were, were for the first time, uh, were being uh, admitted to, to white mm -hmm. uh, universities uh, in the South. And so in your uh, your CV, your curriculum, it's extremely impressive. And, you know, over over the you know several, several decades, you've achieved an awful lot. And when we discuss systematic racism and the obstacles that the black community, as well as other marginalized groups have to overcome in order to achieve success, more obstacles than than, say, a, a, a white male would. 
what would you say has set you apart in your pursuit? What, what sort of values, you mentioned your values and your, your principles. What kind of values and principles do you espouse that have allowed well, you, you? Particularly with respect to how I dealt with racism, you know, one of my values uh, had uh, everything to do with uh, 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 knowing myself, you know, self-authenticity, mm-hmm. uh, really uh, emotional strength is another one uh, of, of my values, and, uh, uh, and uh, persevering. Yeah. And so when I met with uh, obstacles, uh, you know, I, I dug down uh, deep. And uh, as I told people to me, it was, you know, it was really a, a true grit. And so I just uh, took my, my, my licks and uh, kept moving ahead. But I had uh, actually a couple of things happen which really helped me. Uh, and one of them had to do with spending some time at a place called the Center for Creative Leadership um, in Greensboro. Uh, and uh, it, it's a very interesting thing. They, ha- they probably still have it, but the program uh, was a program on uh, creative leadership. At that time, I was uh, working at uh, Sibagaygi, which is now called the, the Novartis after uh, a merger. It's now Novartis, but I was at Sibagaygi, and I was selected to attend this one-week course. I don't know why I was selected, but I was. What I found in the week that I was there is that they have a very simple approach, uh, which simply says that perception is reality. So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how you view yourself or what you think you're doing. The way others perceive you is really their reality. Mm-hmm. And so prior to going there, you get, they give you a 360 uh, feedback instrument. So you, you know, respond to the, this questionnaire which you send to them and your, your boss does. Uh, you select some of your peers and you select some of the uh, people reporting to you. And uh, during the time you were there, uh, you're working in, in most, most of the times in small, small groups. And each one of us was being e- evaluated by three others of the participants. There were 24 of us there. Uh, we did not know who was evaluating whom. Uh, <laughs> but at the end of this, the following happened. You would sit with the three people who are evaluating you. Uh, they would tell you their observations of you, and you were not supposed to make any explanations, just to say thank you. Hmm. And so I had that experience. And then on the, the final uh, exit interview with one of their psychologists, because uh, during the time you're there, you're also being um, evaluated, being observed, I should say, and evaluated by their uh, in-house psychologists. And so uh, you have this exit interview. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, it is unusual, the concordance between the way you see yourself and others see you, your peers, those who report to you, your boss, the concordance is so, so close that we don't see that often. And given your IQ, we cannot understand why you are not higher in your company. And I said, it's very simple because every time it comes to get a promotion, 
my ethnicity <laughs> becomes an issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, I usually either start looking for a job elsewhere or I just simply accept it. And he said to me, look, you're not responsible for the ill deeds of others. The next time that comes up, you should challenge your bosses as to why not you. And almost like clockwork, that happened six months later. When it came to replacing the senior vice president and head of research for the US. And I was one of the internal candidates. And I learned that they had selected someone from the outside. And I remembered this. And so I called up the CEO who had interviewed me, presumably for the job. I, I felt it was a rather strange interview, in fact, a non-interview. And I called him and asked him why not. And he invited me over to his office. It was, it was about five in the afternoon. And we then had a real interview, which, you know, lasted about a couple of hours. Hmm. At the end of which, he said to me, well, why didn't you tell us these things before? I said, like what? Well, like, for example, you worked for two Nobel Prize uh, laureates. Why did you not tell me that? I said, well, to me, that's not important. What is important is my performance since I've been here. Mm. So anyhow, at the end of it, I, I did, I did get, uh, get the job. But it was that, that was an extremely important um, experience because from there on, uh, I then would challenge uh, as respectfully as I could, but I would challenge whenever I was being um, uh, passed Denied. over or being treated badly. Sure. Uh, I would uh, I would not accept it. Uh, I would not be abusive, but I would challenge directly and fiercely. Well, and that's completely fair. And I think that you know, and I'm I've always been taught that whenever I have a job interview, that once I'm turned down, that I it's completely appropriate to ask for any sort of feedback on what you could have done better or or what the qualifications were of the person that that beats you out of the interview or out of the job. Um, so I, I don't think that you were out of line at all in doing that. And, and I'm glad that you did do that, that you, you did have the courage to not be so passive as to, to go ahead and challenge, challenge people with that. And obviously it's worked out very, very well for you. Um, something, I, I just, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to go back and, and touch on one thing. Uh, when, when you got here, doctor, and you saw this, the way that things actually are here as a way, as opposed to the, the perception that you had. Um, and, and you see all of this, this racist, this blatant racism, you, discrimination within the very system of this country. At any point, did you think to yourself, maybe I should pursue something elsewhere in, in a, in a country that doesn't have these issues systemically? Well, as a matter of fact, prior to coming to the uh, U.S., uh, I had received uh, uh, offers, uh, scholarships. I received an offer from Romania, an offer from East Germany, uh, an offer from Israel, actually, which uh, from Tel Aviv University, which actually did interest me. Uh, but, but for us in uh, in uh, in, uh, in Guyana. You know, America was, you know, was it. You know, Reagan said, you know, the, 
the, the city on a hill. <laughs> you know, uh, this was this was it. It was the best country to to be in. I did not want to go to Romania or East Germany, which were communist countries. Uh, and uh, the only places I would have gone to, uh, I was interested in Tel Aviv, but the only places I really would have gone to would have been, of course, the, to England, because I grew up in the British system uh, and, and did have uh, uh, acceptance at any of the universities, but I didn't have the money, uh, <clears throat> or Canada. You know, so it would have been the UK, Canada, or the US would have been my you know, my preference. So now I am here, uh, and I don't have an option in the real sense, yeah. uh, because the, the the reason I came to America is that everything was being paid for. I was on total scholarship, uh, plus getting a stipend. Uh, without that, uh, you know, I could not have uh, left at that time. Could not have left Guyana. Yeah, you were committed. Abroad. So, 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 so there, that was never a question, um, you know, in my mind, should I, should I leave America because I didn't have the wherewithal to go elsewhere? Absolutely. I guess, I guess what I am asking is when you did get to that point where <clears throat> that became an option uh, to maybe go teach uh, in England or an option to go teach somewhere elsewhere, you know, you didn't have to face those discrepancies because I feel like an internal battle has to arise at some point where you see what you do and what your worth is and you understand that you could go other places and get, you know, have a better existence. Well, uh, interesting but, enough, um, uh, an option actually uh, did come up with the potential of going to England as I was completing my, my bachelor's at, at Lehigh. Uh, and... Um, there was the potential option, and I had options in a number of graduate schools, including Cornell, where I did go to, to get my PhD. But at that time, uh, I was beginning to become involved in the struggle, as we would say. Uh, as I was leaving uh, Lehigh University to go to Cornell, I then began to realize that I was in a privileged position and therefore I needed to be doing something to help others. So when I got to Cornell, uh, I became really very, uh, very active. Uh, and my activity, I've always told people, I always preferred uh, to not to be active politically as such, but to do those things which will enable others who have been deprived. So I spent a lot of time uh, in uh, uh, coaching and uh, mentoring the young black uh, students who, who were at Cornell and also, you know, uh, representing them uh, when, uh, when they had problems. And so uh, I then took on that role. It took on the role of also, um, you know, demonstrating against uh, the administration at, uh, at Cornell, which, as you might know, uh, that actually ended up in 1969 uh, with the students uh, uh, taking over the Willard Strait Hall, that's the student uh, union hall, uh, and guns were involved. Wow. And that's a yeah, story that. in itself. Uh, I was not in the, uh, the Strait 
the student union, but uh, supported, you know, supported that effort. Uh, and at the end of that, I was on what was uh, uh, called a, a constitutional uh, group uh, to help to bring uh, changes uh, to uh, Cornell uh, and to establish the Africana Study Center uh, at, uh, at Cornell. So that's where I tended to, you know, to to put my energies. Yeah, it sounds like Absolutely. you had a lot of investment by that point. Absolutely, and I I feel like that's very commendable, and I feel like it at that point, and and I love that you have this perspective of coming from another country where you didn't have to deal with systemic racism, and you come into this this culture and had you been a different color you would have been given tons of opportunities uh, when you got here but instead you had to uh, take a harder path or you had to you had to be in the struggle as you said yes uh, and, I, and I think that's very commendable and I, I feel like that's how we are where we are today we still have so much work to do in this country as far as uh, institutional racism is concerned but I feel like it's people like yourself that have stayed and committed themselves to being a part of that struggle and going about it in uh, a peaceful way and doing it through different channels that are, are not violent, angry channels, which in, in my personal opinion, the black community has every right to be so furious with this country and the way it's treated it. But, but just for people like yourself to stay in that, it's very commendable. Sure. Well, I, you know, I had a very simple approach uh, is that uh, we have to have soldiers, if you like, uh, fighting in different ways. There are those who uh, may have to take up arms. There are those who march in the streets. But, at the, but, you know, at the end of it, if we don't have the soldiers who are prepared to deal academically who are prepared to contribute in the various aspects uh, uh, of life, be it science, be it engineering, be it uh, 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 literature, but who are well-groomed, who are well-educated, and who can then participate. If we don't have that, then we are lost. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are those who are are, are are fighting on the front. You have to have those of us like myself, you know, who are uh, in the rear, making sure that those who are fighting in the front have what they need. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's Not it's only physically, but intellectually, right? It's just as important if not more so to have people like yourself that that are equipped to have these sort of discussions you know i came here in 63 as i said two weeks before martin luther king's mm -hmm. march in washington his was a nonviolent effort it was a gandhi type effort and look at how much he achieved mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. actually and along with that i've heard some arguments from people that that say that Martin Luther King couldn't have achieved what what he had sought out to do without um, base kind of on the other end of the spectrum or the other side of the coin 
Malcolm X being a, a more... I actually, I absolutely agree with that. And, and how would you explain that? Well, <laughs> I, I think the explanation was really very simple. It's namely the predominant white population was suddenly faced with, okay, you've got two movements, one of which is violent, okay, tied to the black Muslim uh, movement, which was holding tremendous sway. Then you had the Black Panthers. Okay? So, uh, you know, so on the one hand, you have got, you know, two movements which are moving towards violence. And you have, on the other hand, a movement which was nonviolent and speaking to the better angels within us. And I think in a real sense, uh, and I tell people this because I watched it, Martin Luther King succeeded when white young people from the North went and joined, you know, his efforts and they too were being brutalized. You know, the hoses mm -hmm. were turned in them, the dogs were turned in them, and a number of them lost their lives. Okay. That spoke, spoke volumes and directly, particularly to white Northerners as to the inequity of what was going on. But the, but the situation was, and, and, and perhaps, the, and I think that's probably correct, is that the country was then faced with, you know, do you deal with a nonviolent uh, uh, effort that's appealing to our, our, our better angels? Or do you want to deal with a radical, a, a radical, somewhat militarized in the case of the Black Panther uh, effort. Well, and that's, you know, what you were speaking to just a moment ago, where you, you said that you felt like you were backing up those people that needed to uh, express themselves more physically in, in, in confrontation, you being behind those lines, supporting those people intellectually through thoughtful words and, and, and rhetoric. Um, and I, I think that one thing we should do before we move on too much further is explain critical race theory. And this is from a, an article from educationweek.org called What is Critical Race Theory and Why is it Under Attack? And they define it as critical race theory as is an academic concept that is more than 40 years old. The core idea is that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice but also something embedded in legal system and policies. And so that, like Chris had mentioned a moment ago, we spoke about redlining and the detrimental effects of redlining. And, and although it's been, uh, it's been made illegal since the 1960s, the effects of it have, have followed the black community for decades now and generations. Well, and, and, and I, I wanted to add on to that. I, I recently just learned that, They've continued that through another set of laws. Uh, in a lot of towns, they have uh, what's called a law where you can only build single family homes. This prevents uh, affordable housing from being put into those um, communities. So basically, uh, that community stays mostly white because the they're not allowing any uh, rental affordable properties to go and be put into those areas. That's just another way that they continue to uh, have that systemic racism in place. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we have that law in Fort Collins, or we did. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, and that just kind of contributes to gentrification too, doesn't it? Yes, well, you know, particularly in places like, you know, New York City, places like Brooklyn and other places. Right. Gentrification, you know, it's just another another word for, you know, denying um, uh, poor people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and... areas. All the the people who support that law, their defense of it is all been well. It's so that we don't have you know seven families living in one apartment, you know, like you hear about. And uh, well, you know, there you wouldn't have that if you had affordable housing. That's right. I was going to say there's a solution to that. You yeah, know, provide point, affordable housing. Right. Provide yeah. affordable housing and jobs. You know, one of the things people fail to realize is that uh, poor people. I grew up poor, and I told people. Although, you know, there were five of us living literally in one room, you know, um, uh, using a common uh, uh, shower, a common uh, toilet for, you know, a, a yard with s- such similar rooms. I've forgotten how many there were uh, in that yard. But the one thing, you know, my mother had the little area where, you know, in front of our, uh, our little room every Saturday, you know, I had to sweep the yard and keep it clean. And she always said to me, it doesn't matter if your clothes are ragged and torn, they must be clean. Mm-hmm. So I had to, you know, to wash my, my, my clothes. Mom's <laughs> you know, sure best. Clothes, even if they had patches, I had clean clothes when I, when I went to school. Yeah. Uh, you know, and the people failed to realize that poor people do have a pride in where they live. However, when, you know, everything is taken away from them, then they, they, they lose even that. And that's the thing, as a matter of fact, that really struck me among many things that struck me is the, the first time I went into Harlem was the first time I realized, I realized that I, that I really was very poor because on the one hand, you know, there was uh, Times Square, or, you know, and that whole area that I've seen with all the lights and the large buildings. And then I go into Harlem and I see all of this poverty. And I'm simply saying, if I were living in Harlem, I would really realize how poor I am. And I probably will, will, will not have, you know, uh, much, much interest in living, mm-hmm. frankly. Yeah, and it makes you, you know, it makes you angry. Why do they have so much when I can't have anything? I work as hard as they do. Am I not as good as them? All of that. Well, and one of the things, one of the things when I was at MIT and I resigned from MIT because of a, of a, um, a, a black professor was denied tenure, and I, I was convinced that indeed uh, racism was involved, and uh, and I uh, I resigned in protest, and and what I explained to. Uh, uh, you know, Dr. Susan Hockfield, who was the, the president uh, at the time, the only woman president that MIT has had. And she was saying to me, well, Frank, I don't understand this. Here you are. You are a full professor. Your center is doing very well. You know, people would give an arm and a leg just to be associated with MIT. And you're resigning. And I said, you know, I don't think you get it. Okay. That's kind of a point of a protest that you have something to lose. Yeah, yes, and I, and, I, and, I, and I said to her, you know, I am doing well, but the young faculty who are complaining are not doing well. And I made a proposal of getting an external panel 
as you did a number of years ago when the women complained about not being treated equitably, uh, you brought in an external panel to evaluate it, to do the same thing for the minority faculty, and you have refused. That tells me that you do not value, you do not value the, the, this, these faculty and their contributions. Now look at me, I am black. So you just told me you do not value me in spite of all the contributions you just mentioned. Indeed. And one of the things that, that, that has been core that I, you know, that I, I became quite convinced of is that this is as simple as not valuing others. Yeah, absolutely. Taking for granted uh, the contributions. Well, it, Dr. Frank, that actually um, lets me think of something that, that I've been talking about too. Uh, I've actually had this discussion about critical race theory with a few of my coworkers who are actually uh, decently conservative. Uh, and it's been explained to me by them that their understanding of it is that it is basically meant to turn people racist against white people. It's meant to make people hate white people. Um, do you have any ways that you could counteract that argument? Do you have any ways that you could well, argue it's, against it's, that? It's just absolutely not. It's, it's not the case. I wouldn't even try to counteract it as an argument. The simple <laughs> I like I like that response. <laughs> the, the simple fact I do too, except for it's something that they take seriously. No, I know that they honestly believe. The simple fact of critical race, uh, you know, race theory, is a simple approach to understanding our history and reporting our history correctly. Okay, and making that known. If you don't know your history, okay, you're designed to repeat it. We all say that. While we also know that you know, uh, in this country. There were many things that were that were hidden, uh, were reported in incorrectly. Uh, you know, it's it's amazing it, it, how many people did not know about Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. you know? I didn't know about it. I, I didn't learn about it until last year. Yeah, uh, last yeah, year was the first know, I had ever heard about it, and that taught that as part of the uh, history. Right. It makes it kind of makes it really makes me sick that I wasn't. Yeah. yeah, critical race theory is basically looking at many of these issues, researching them and reporting them, you know, uh, uh, accurately and making them known. Why would one be afraid of that? Mm -hmm. Drawing... <laughs> I also didn't know about Black Wall Street until you did not a couple know about years Black Wall well. Street. Yes, and these are huge, huge pieces of history that need to be taught and, and and everybody does make that assessment if you don't know your history you're doomed to repeat it for me i look at it from a different perspective a, a humanism perspective a perspective that we shouldn't treat anybody like this not just because of your color because of your sex because of your disability because of um, how you identify i believe all of these things we should accept all people and everybody should be given the same opportunities but unfortunately we live in a system that does not do that it's interesting to me because i i lived in in germany when i was on the the board of management for a large pharmaceutical company and i my i was headquartered uh in germany this was a, a german and then 
French to merge with a French company. Uh, and uh, so I got to be friendly with uh, a number of Germans. And, you know, and sh sure enough, after a while, the issue of Nazism, etc., came up. And to me, it was fascinating. Two, two things. Uh, one time when I was uh, off learning German, I was uh, in a two-week uh, in, uh, intensive course. The guy who was the co-owner uh, uh, of this um, uh, institute uh, took me for a ride and actually took me and showed me some caves where uh, many Jews, uh, uh, you know, had to work to make munitions, etc. Uh, and then he explained to me uh, or shared with me something that gave him a lot of comfort because his father uh, was, uh, uh, I don't know, a general, uh, but was high uh, in, the, in the army, in the Nazi army. And uh, he said something with which, of course, he, he has struggled until one day he met a Jewish man who told him he knew his father and how well his father uh, had treated uh, the, the Jews under uh, his, his command. And that gave him much comfort. But it struck me that it was important to him to tell me this, I would never have known it. So there was something in him as he recognized me as a black male <laughs> in a, a, an American, as far as he's concerned, I'm a black American, not from Guyana. He's seeing a black American and it was important for him in a way to make sure that I knew he was not a Nazi sympathizer. Mm -hmm. And even though his father may have had to work uh, for the Nazis, he was a decent man. So that's one thing that struck me. Mm -hmm. The second thing that struck me, and this took many, many years, when the, the, my executive assistant and her husband, uh, one time having dinner, raised the, the question. And what they basically said is that their generation, they struggle with what their parents did, but they make sure that that is never forgotten. Mm -hmm. So that their generation and the generation after that would never repeat what their, their parents did. Yeah. You know, and what we were talking about uh, a while ago regarding the the misconception of critical race theory and why it's uh it there's this this resistance from the uh the conservative right on why it should be taught in schools. Citing that same article that I mentioned before from educationweek.org, they give an example by saying that one conservative organization, the Heritage Foundation, recently attribute a whole host of issues to the to critical race theory, including the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests, LGBTQ clubs and schools, diversity training in federal agencies and organizations, California's recent ethnic studies model curriculum, the free speech debate on college campuses, and alternative 
to exclusionary disciplines, such as the Promise Program in, in Florida. The organization claimed that when followed by its logical conclusion, critical race theory is destructive and rejects fundamental ideas on which our constitutional republic is based. And like Chris was saying, that's just like, it's something that it almost feels like you're you're reaching really deep to try to find a reason why this shouldn't be included in, in curriculum. And it it's, uh, I can't help but think that it's hiding your your true nature of intolerance and probably bigotry. And it's a cowardice that, that you are, that somebody is trying to instead say that, no, we're just, we, we can't go backwards. We can't, you know, these are issues of the past. And the more that we dwell on them, the longer that it'll seem like more of a problem than it actually is, that it actually encourages division where there is none. And I think that this sort of attitude and, and approach is in itself a problem of systematic racism and speaks to the privilege of those people who don't feel the necessity of teaching it in schools. And it's just like uh, folks that that have a problem with the Black Lives Matter movement. In uh, 2017, the founder of the Blue Lives Matter movement, I've cited this a couple of times, but I think it's such a great example. His name is Joseph Impatrice. Uh, from Brooklyn, and he appeared on a podcast, the Artie Quitter podcast, where he said that liberals, left wing, whatever the hell you want to call people nowadays, they think that they can make a change for their cause by focusing on a negative thing, and they don't realize what it does to police. It, and he goes on to say, it sucks that years ago there was such, uh, there was so much bad in certain areas, you know, the South, there were certain police departments that were in the Klan, but that was a long time ago. And that just... To me, that just blows my mind to think that people must assume that just because a rule is instituted or a policy changes, a flip just switch, and automatically that changes people's perceptions. People are enlightened right away. And um, and I've had discussions and arguments with people like this, um, usually straight white men, who, who say that racism today isn't what it was pre-civil rights era. And I think that these people just don't want to leave their comfort zones and acknowledge that they benefit benefited a great deal from systematic racism that it's not just walking down the street and seeing a clan member beating beating up on a black person it's it's the, it's the things that happen behind the scenes like redlining that are so deeply rooted um how do you reach out to these people and or are they just a lost cause well, the unfortunate thing and the and the, the, the sad thing, you know, when I, I I was like most of us riveted to the TV on January sixth, uh, you know, observing what was going on this insurrection, uh, and you know, when you come from uh, a third world country uh, where you know you live with, with that as a possibility, you come to America, you don't ever expect to see that in America. And you sit and you watch that. And then in the aftermath to it, you watch the, the diligence with which the Republican Party particularly tried to sweep that under the table, tried to pretend it did not happen. So yeah, you yeah, begin sure. to recognize. Or to say that uh, it was a conspiracy and that. It was a conspiracy, right. yes, it's Black Lives uh, who did it. Or I thought they were just taking a tour. 
Right. Uh, you know, they were taking a tour. So, yes, <laughs> it was just the one. Yeah. yeah no, but the lengths that, that they the will go to. FBI giving Antifa a tour That's right. of the liberal Nazis. Right. That's all. So, okay. so when you want, you know, let me say when I when I when I look at that and I look at the extent to which, I mean, something which we've all which we all witness, where they were afraid of their lives had to be squirreled away, you know, where there were chance to hang the vice president and he and his family had to be squirreled away, and and they lived through that, and literally. You know, days thereafter, they're denying it. Mm-hmm. And they're denying it because of a particular I- uh, ideology that is now important called Trumpism. Okay. And all that that entails, and when you look at all of the things that Trumpism entails, which has to do a lot with racism, which has to do uh, a lot of it with, uh, with xenophobia, you know, which has to do a lot with white supremacy, then you begin to realize that if you do not face the honest truth, okay, and you keep then you keep trying to sweep these things under the table or to explain them differently and not tell the honest truth, okay, things like systemic racism become even more, you know, in 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 and even more um, sunk into the, the the very fabric of the uh, uh, of the country. Mm-hmm. Or seeing that now, Texas's new laws uh, concerning critical race theory are doing things like banning the uh, teachings of Martin Luther King. His uh, "I Have a Dream" speech, in particular, which to me is just crazy. How can that be? That's literally a part of. That's literally a part of America's history. Right. I mean, when you look back on the civil rights, that that was taught to me in school, and it should be taught, and I, I believe more should be taught on it. I mean, we at least covered Martin Luther King in school, and I don't understand how you can rebel against that idea, Doctor. I wanted to ask you a quick question as well, kind of off topic from those things, and my question is: being an evan- evangelical Christian, does it shock you? That the evangel the majority of evangelical Christians support Trump. Well, I I have to tell you that you know about three years after I've been here, I actually came down with a, with a bleeding ulcer, uh, and uh, the the <laughs> the doctor in the hospital after you know they they made the diagnosis and the like he he said to me he says, "Are you worried about anything?" And I said, "No." He says, we don't understand this. You're a top student, you're an athlete, you don't smoke, you don't drink, and you've come down with a bleeding ulcer. You were still a young man this, at, when this happened. You don't often see that. So I went back to my dorm and I was lying on my bed and suddenly it hit me. I had spent two and a half years in America trying to harmonize my evangelical religious upbringing with what I was observing in America. I mean, in all shapes and form, not only with respect to racism, also, you know, um, Baker was one of them, I've forgotten the other guy, 
you know, these guys who are preaching fire and brimstone, and then you find they're committing fraud, they're with prostitutes, and on and on. So, uh, on pedophiles. Levels, I'm sorry? I said pedophiles. A lot of them are pedophiles. getting busted for being so pedophiles. On levels, it, you know, it just shook me. And so one day I actually decided to walk away from organized religion, and I have not been involved in organized religion ever since. So, you know, and this comes up uh, ever so often when I people who've read my book and invite me to uh, to give a talk, they ask me, am I still an evangelical Christian? And I tell them, no, I am not. <laughs> because, you know, what I learned was the disciples asked Christ, what is the greatest commandment? And Christ said, you want thou service? shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And Christ added, and second. the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I said, and when I see, you know, people who call themselves evangelical Christians not doing that, then, you know, and when Christ himself said uh, with, with respect to children, you know, they are the kingdom. They are the entrance to the kingdom. And then we do the things we did, you know, when we're doing with the, with the immigrant kids, you know, mm -hmm. intense. I, 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 you know, something is wrong. I can't be a part of that. Sure. So I walked away in 1966 from evangelical religion. And uh, in the last three, four years, I must say, uh, I've had even uh, less respect uh, uh, for it and have become really even more disillusioned uh, uh, as I as I watch it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I that That's one of my biggest, and when you said you were an evangelical Christian, I just wanted to come back to that and touch on that because, uh, you know, for, for all of their teachings in the Bible, I'm not a Christian, but I have read the Bible uh, a few times. For all of their teachings, it, it really, one of the things that stood out to me was they seemed to have elected the very person that's spoken about in Revelations. Yes. 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 And, and the fascinating thing is, which <laughs> to me, is that if Trump were black, if Obama were doing some of the things that Trump did, those evangelical Christians oh, would man. have been... Uh, you know, quoting revelations, right. etc., would have been predicting that you know the end of the world isn't there, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, and and Dinesh D'Souza actually released a documentary uh, slash movie before uh, the 2012 election. I remember, uh, in which he stated basically in the documentary that if Obama was reelected, that the end of the world would come. That was a real documentary <laughs> that people don't don't seem to remember that came out right before the 2012 election. So. I remember talking to the guy who owns my gym about Obama being reelected for a third term, and he was just like, "It'd be the end of America. He'd be the end of America." And I was just like, "Well, it's not going to happen. You know, they're yeah. going to follow the rules because that's you know who they are, what they are." And then, you know, fast forward a few years, and he's, "I hope Trump gets elected for a third term." <laughs> you know, <laughs> the hypocrisy. Um, you know, the, the the thing that is fascinating, you know, you know, critical race theory in the whole bit. What are they afraid of? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, what good. are they? And, and this is what I find really difficult for me to understand. You know, 
Well, you and that's simply say you can simply say, which is true. You know, I am not responsible for the sins of my father. However, I am responsible for how I behave today. Mm-hmm. And if the things that my father did are abhorrent, then those are the things that I should avoid doing. Sure. And what's kind of ironic about that? What's kind of what's wrong with that? Nothing. And what we see happening in the last couple years are, you know, we don't like to talk apparently about um, the history of systemic racism and critical race theory, and like, you know, we're supposed to put that in the past. But people in the South who defend the Confederacy so fervently, when we talk about removing statues of Robert E. Lee and other Confederate leaders, the argument is always, why are they trying to erase history? You know, like this is this is part of our of who we are. And 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 I that makes me think of a lot about what you're saying right now of, you know, our fathers, we don't inherit the sins of our fathers but we also can't forget it we also know need to know how to learn from that and it just i think that that's such a weak excuse that you hear about you know erasing history by removing these these statues that glorify these these confederate leaders because you know just because you're you're removing a um an homage to somebody that doesn't mean that it's still not going to be taught or spoken about um, you know, a history book is in a in a museum. Yeah, people have made it very clear with the issue of the of, of, of some of these statutes. It's the it's it's the place and the positions where they are. You know, they belong in museums. We exactly. don't want to lose that history. We want to we want to remember that history. You know, no. but when you have them, you know, in the in the most important square, it's honoring the them. Dominating then it's you know and it's it it, it 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 serves to remind you know others of the terrible things that they experience and when things around them you know also are reminding them of it you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's hard to defend having the statutes in certain places yeah absolutely uh, my my perspective on that as a veteran who fought in Iraq I use the analogy of Saddam Hussein, of yes. how would I feel if I came back and somebody had built a statue to Saddam Hussein uh, in a city here in America? Uh, why would we build a statue to somebody that we defeated? Why would we build a statue to an enemy? And and that's that's my whole point. And I think that's where it needs to begin and end. And with the, the whole statue thing is that it was an enemy of the United States of America, and we yes. defeated them. Like we don't put up statues and, and different memorials to different countries that we've defeated, right? We don't put up statues of Hitler, yes. we beat him in World War Two. So that that's, that's what I compare it to. So yeah. if you can wrap your well, mind around that Confederacy, why are we celebrating? Right? <laughs> yeah. And again, Absolutely. that's, that's just like what I was saying before about hiding behind other things when you have an ulterior motive and it being cowardly to not just come forward with what you really mean. So don't say that you just want to keep the statues up because of history and we can't we can't forget history and our past and that sort of thing. Just say that you're honoring these people by erecting statues to them because a museum is a great place to learn things. History books are a great place to learn history books. You don't need to yeah, I, I've not really learned a whole heck of a lot from statues in my life, you know. 
that are placed in public spheres. Um, one thing that I wanted to uh, touch on uh, really quick was when we were speaking about violence, and one thing that's been really con- controversial ever since uh, the George Floyd murder last year were the violence uh, was the violence associated with the protests that followed that the looting on behalf of the the black activists and maybe some black lives matter and antifa folks and and a lot of people who are opposed to the protesters will use that as a means to distract or dis- discredit the protesters but again i think that that kind of comes from a place of apathy and when we we're talking about gentrification a while ago and you know, you you mentioned being in Harlem and how, you know, people are being pushed out of Brooklyn and areas like Harlem because, or, you know, we're talking about like the, uh, the, the plus three, no more than three related law. When you are finding yourself pushed out of a home you were resigned to live in because you're poor in the first place because of gentrification, do you really have any obligation to care about destruction of property or looting or that sort of thing when the rules of society aren't really benefiting you anymore in the first place? Like, why should you have to abide by those rules anymore? Well, I, th- I think the thing for people to bear in mind, uh, and uh, you know, the family of uh, George Floyd, for example, were really very clear: this is not the way they want. Uh, you know, uh, George Floyd to be remembered. And uh, any of the family members it will be very clear and many others will be very clear that. And, and, I, and I wanted to say that I don't, and there's been so many um, innocent uh, black men uh, killed by the police that it's happened so many times that I, I feel like it's crazy. But I have never ever heard any single family get on TV and say, "Let's go tear something up." They've all been, yeah. "We want to be peaceful." And 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 most black people because understand, you know, they're the it's the black community that suffers anyhow. Okay. But, there, but there's a rage, and, and some elements take advantage of that rage, okay, uh, and uh, loot, etc. But most of the black community doesn't support that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they understand the rage, they too are raging, but they are recognizing that, you know, next week, etc., when those stores are gone, where are they going to, you know, to, to shop? And, and I feel like uh, it's a different thing if they had gone to a very, uh, you know, upscale white community and burned that down. That would have been a different thing. <laughs> okay. But when you are desperate and you have nothing, okay, then the anger is turned in upon yourself. And that's what a lot of that looting and rage is is the anger has been turned in upon themselves because, you know, the following day, when those things are, are gone, who, who suffers? Okay, right, the people yeah. who owned and insurance will take care uh, of a lot of it. But the very people who live there, who, who did the looting, now can no longer shop there, can no longer do business there. So it's it's not really of benefit. It it it, it is a it is a, it is a rage 
And, and frankly, there are uh, people who just wait for such opportunities. And in fact, I think it was pointed out um, in the George Floyd uh, uh, case that uh, many of the, the, of the people who were arrested came from outside of the area. And that- Absolutely. I, yeah, and I'd seen reports of that um, as well. I, I just... W- Nobody looks at all white people and thinks of Charleston, South Carolina. Yes. Um, you know, so it's unfair to paint the whole black community in a negative light because of rioters and looters. You're going to have, you don't look at all sports fans as rioters and looters just because some of them, you know, riot and loot their own cities when their sports teams win. One thing uh, that I came across on your website that I saw is as as helpful and maybe a uh, sort of a, a way that we can start talking about to some solutions is the safe haven solutions the talk can you explain that a little bit yes uh, one of the things that struck me and interestingly enough uh, why the idea came to me as i sat there looking you know another time when i was riveted to the tv is looking at george floyd being murdered and you know, the people on the side are trying to get, you know, them to stop, etc., and being totally powerless. And, I, and I'm looking at this, and it's coming home clear to me that here's a systemic problem with the police, but there's an individual losing his life. And when we look at systemic racism, uh, you know, in organizations, companies, etc., we focus on DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and we focus on the environment. We focus on, you know, improving awareness, uh, making people aware of things like microaggressions, uh, the language they use. We focus on things that we can measure, namely recruitment, you know, the numbers whom we recruit, etc. And we fail to recognize the individual. And uh, so I have set up safe haven dialogues for the following reason, that one, an individual is involved, one. Secondly, often things break down because there isn't a dialogue that is occurring between that individual and the manager in the middle or or their immediate manager, immediate supervisor. And three, there is an environment in which equity is not. As a matter of fact, I don't focus on the diversity, equity, in, uh, inclusion. I focus on equity, inclusion, diversity. Because in that order. if overall there's equity in an environment, you know, most of the people have no time to think about including others and about diversity if they don't feel that they themselves are being treated equitably. So in safe haven dialogues, we, you know, we invite individuals, we invite companies, uh, individuals, companies who have a problem, to send individuals to us. Uh, and because what we are going to do with that individual, we have a format in which they uh, describe their, their situation, what's their desired outcome, the environment they're in, etc. And they present to a panel that we have, we call it our VIP panel, 
victors over uh, injustices in their professions. We call them a VIP panel. But these are individuals who have been through similar things so they can be empathetic. But their role is to listen to that individual and try to find out as they listen to that individual how they could help that individual reframe their problem mm. you know, in such a way that they can have a meaningful dialogue with their manager and lead to solutions that increases both their own productivity and the productivity uh, of, their, of their organization. So that is what we do in Safe Haven Dialogues. And we say Safe Haven because, you know, when they come, they can discuss uh, with the, the VIP panel. They're in a safe haven you know, for, for that uh, discussion. That's great. And yeah. let me give you a, a, an example, because when I give this example, people get it. Yeah, please. When I completed the uh, I was hired by Xerox, okay? So young black PhD. The senior vice president and head of research and development was relatively new, and uh, he wanted to increase the number of uh, black PhDs in the Xerox uh, at the time. At the time, there was only one, was only one uh, black PhD. Well, I got there, and my manager you know, kept telling me he couldn't find me uh, a meaningful project for me to do. And this went back and forth. I went to complain to the senior vice president a couple of times. But one day, I was sitting talking with him uh, about this issue. And I suddenly said to him, you know, Bob has just joined us. And Bob has not even completed his PhD. He's still writing his thesis. But you have put Bob on the hottest project we have going right now. And you're telling me, although I've completed my PhD, you know, I have a PhD. You're telling me that you can't find me a good project. So I want you to think of me like Bob. Don't think of me like Frank Douglas. Pretend I'm Bob. And he looked at me and he nodded his head and said, you know, you're right. Bob is on the hot project. And I got, I mean, I left his office in anger, ran down to the, to Myron Tribus's, Dr. Tribus's office, the senior vice president, told him what had happened. And, uh, you know, and he was very sympathetic, offered, you know, to have me come work for him, blah, blah, blah. Years later, I thought about that. And I thought, I wish I had had the maturity and wisdom at the time, or I'd had someone to guide me. Mm -hmm. Because of something that I totally missed, never thought about. Dr. Tribus had put himself on the line to bring in a black PhD. He therefore wanted me to be successful. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to get a good project where I could show my stuff. Had I gone to Dr. Tribus and said, Dr. Tribus, could you help Steve Strella, my manager, find me a good project where I can demonstrate what I've learned in my PhD? I might still have been at, at Xerox. Had I reframed the problem? Because I didn't want him to beat up on Steve Strella because he was discriminating against me. I wanted to get a good project. Mm -hmm. And so what we try to do is when individuals you know, come to us, 
is that we explore with them the problem they have and try to see if we can reframe that problem so that they can go back and have that dialogue and come out with something that is productive to both. Well, that's an extremely valuable way to go about that because like you were explaining with your situation in the moment, you have so much investment in that and that your emotions are, are riding really high and there. You may act irrationally because of that. So to have a forum where you can talk about that with people who are uninvested and can maybe give you a perspective that's more logical or maybe a more level headed approach. That's, that's a really great tool. And I'm glad that that exists. The interesting thing is, as I was writing my memoirs, uh, it suddenly, it, it occurred to me as I was writing it, that basically that was what I was doing with many of the problems that I faced. I kept reframing the problems yeah. in order to deal with Man. them. And I think that's part of my, <laughs> part of my success. Uh, I did not recognize at the time that that is what, was what I was doing. Man, there's so many problems I'd like to refrain looking back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Absolutely. Some of the things I would have done differently. Well, Chris, yeah, do you, do you have anything you else? Basically, your desired outcome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Well, that's one of the things which we do, you know, when uh, a client comes, we, we have a form that they use and they start off by saying, what is their desired outcome? Okay. Before they start talking about the situation they're in. Yeah, that's very valuable. That's I, I have uh, a question. Uh, from my perspective, I feel like a lot of the result of Trump and the success with all of those people was driven out of the fear of a black president. I, I, I feel like it was a response to the first African-American president. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, doctor? Do you I, agree I, with that assessment? Oh, I actually believe that. I, in, in fact, I was not expecting uh, Obama to get a second term because I already began to see what we call buyer's remorse. You know, I think, uh, you know, the, America was in love with the idea of having the first black president. It's like a novel. When the reality <laughs> came that we have the first black president, then all these, you know, um, uh, hidden racist issues came, uh, came to the fore. And remember how Trump started. Trump started his political life with birtherism. The, the questioning the birth certificate, I remember right. that. Correct. That's how he yes. started. Yes. And Trump, when Trump said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would still vote for him, was when I recognized that Trump had recognized something very fundamental. That he could tap into. Population, the xenophobia, the racism, the white supremacy, mm -hmm. he recognized it, and so he tapped into it. Well, and the thing about that demographic of people, too, and you're absolutely right, is that they're a very, very low cognitive, low consciousness group of people. So it's it's a very powerful set of emotions to tap into, and it's a very easy way to appeal to people because it's, it's, it's like a frontal lobe sort of yes. like... Uh, but here, here is what is truly sad. What is truly sad is we have a situation where 
we don't have leaders anymore in, in the Republican Party. We don't have leaders anymore. They are following what this, you know, tr what this group of Trump devotees want. And they're doing that because of one thing. They are afraid they will be primaried. And since in the primary, you know, Trump voters will go to the polls and they will lose the primary, they will lose their jobs. And so rather than having leaders who have a vision and are moving us all forward, we are in a situation where we have one party that is following the lowest denominator mm -hmm. of that party. Absolutely. Which is what? Absolutely. It's a race to the bottom. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's something that we, we talk about often is the appeal to the lowest common denominator. Because again, you can cast a wide net and it's a lot easier. And I think that if Trump could have, if he felt that he could have appealed to the Democrats in the same way, he would have done it. It was just a matter of selling his soul. And what was the easiest way he could do that to the broadest amount of people? And again, like when you're you're kind of appealing to that lizard brain type of mentality, it's a lot. It's 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 a, it's much simpler. And uh, even that the his uh, his uh, what do you call it um, campaign slogan? Make America great again. Like what is that says it all to me right there because it's such a it's such a broad saying that's it's sort of a litmus test of like well what does that mean to you that America was great at one time, but now because of whatever it may be minorities gay people immigrants now america is not great so here i am to to take you back to the you know to the 1950s golden era of white picket fences and and in a in a shiny veneer that isn't even real but that's that's what he sold himself on was this idyllic white community and I'd mentioned a little bit ago about Blue Lives Matter and that being a reactionary, a reactionary um, movement to Black Lives Matter. And I've always said that I think Blue Lives Matter or the Thin Blue Line is nothing more than a tacky reaction to Black Lives Matter. Um, and I've, if you look around at a lot of the people who have like the Blue, Li Blue Lives Matter stickers or the Thin nice. Blue Line stickers... Um, it's always the same type of people and it's always middle to up, uh, upper class white people. And I think that it's because those kind of people see the police as like a buffer between them and a more rural community, like a black community. And the police are going to protect their, their white picket fence community from these people. And what, how do you feel about that as far as blue lives matter being reactionary to black lives matter? Well, you know, when it comes to the, 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 the police, you know, I, I grew up in a, a British colony, so I know a lot about England. And, you know, one of the things uh, in Europe generally, <laughs> you know, the police fulfill the role you expect them to be. They're there to protect the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're there to, uh, to deal with, you know, the, the heinous crimes. They're not there to harass a group of people. Uh, they're not there to terrorize a group of people to make another group feel safe. 
you know, and the whole thing here, I mean, you, you know, you, you you look at the difference here with all of the the weapons that uh, 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 the police uh, police have. You know, they use the argument that well, you know, uh, the criminals uh, uh, have got these weapons, so they have to have them. Uh, well, there are ways to solve that problem, but we refuse to solve it because of our amendment phenomenon. But you know, when you look at the example of other first world countries, the European countries, the you know um, uh, uh, the UK, uh, we don't have this sort of uh, of police brutality and police mentality mm-hmm. because their police are not serving the role which you describe of protecting a privileged uh, class from uh, from the rest. And so we really need to, in a way, you know, we don't, <laughs> and I'm not one of those who talk about defunding the police, no, but we do need to rethink, you know, some of the things uh, we, we have uh, police do. We do need to, re- to rethink uh, policing. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I actually have an associate's degree in criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like the whole system needs to be revamped and it needs to be more focused on rehabilitating people than it is locking them up and teaching them how to become better criminals. Also, I, I mean, it's disproportionately uh, black in in every jail across America, it's disproportionate to the percentage of the population. And that's, that's everywhere across the board. So when you start looking at those things, uh, as far as the, the criminal system itself, you begin to question those. And then you begin to question why we even have nonviolent offenders locked up in prisons in the first place. Uh, And, and it, it just keeps going. I'm, I like the idea ideas of defund the police. And I feel like defund the police just scares so many people away. Just it's really bad marketing. Like that name is terrible. It it, it absolutely is, but it it is police reform needs to happen in this country. And, and and community policing is a way that they're trying to address it in, in some areas. And, and that's good getting out into the community and the officers interacting and actually getting to know the people that they serve in their community. Uh, But as far as, as I'm concerned, I think that the biggest thing needs to be that a lot of that money needs to be shifted away from us attacking and going out and trying to meet this quota of putting people in jail to let's go out and try and help our community. Let's get mental health professionals involved when they go out on calls. And maybe this will help stop some of this unnecessary police shooting. Well, and that's what defund the police actually means. It's just a bad thing. Absolutely. However, you know, once, whenever we use a, a slogan and we find it's not being helpful, uh, we should stop using it and use the correct uh, right. slogan. Uh, you know, the unfortunate thing, actually, I'll tell you one of the things that really surprised me about America, because again, when I came to America, I thinking this is a very sophisticated place, a place where, you know, there's a, you know, open debate, etc. And one of the things I found and Trump really took that to another level is slogans. Yeah. People, bumper sticker statements. No. I'm sorry. I call them bumper sticker statements. They're platitudes. Yeah. Bumper sticker statements. Yes. And, 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 and people use that to, uh, to, to really, to marshal people together Yeah, and people, not, no, people are no longer 
thinking, they're no longer reacting to ideas, they're reacting to bumper sticker slogans. When it's that lowest common denominator again, and it's appealing by yes, yeah, by uh, appealing to the lowest processing group of people that are emotionally driven by statements like that, or statements like "build a wall," or yes, you know. I mean, I have to tell you that was one of the things that also uh, surprised me when I came to America because my view as America, you know, there are these people who are, you know, very rational, who who debate, who uh, try to come to consensus, try to come to the the best solutions for any particular problem that there is, uh, only to find that there's a lot of sloganeering going going around and uh, uh, and people are are, are being um, <clears throat> assembled uh, based on slogans, and they don't—they don't even evaluate the slogans. Well, wasn't uh, that want... something that was that people were turned off of from Obama? Was that Obama spoke beyond a fourth grade level, and yes. he spoke on more complex issues, and I, and people were intimidated by that. And then Trump came along, and Trump does, in fact, speak at a fourth grade level. And then that's when people started saying, well, I, you know, he talks like me. He relates more yes. to, you know, to me. And it's like, well, I don't, I don't want somebody like you and as a president. I, mean, <laughs> I, pre- I prefer an educated person. Which again is ironic. You know, why do I want my president to talk like me? I want him to, to, to be doing something better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you were, you were talking about there be, needing to be foot soldiers um, and then kind of, you know, the, the people in the intellectual, the academia, uh, the wealthy the, to kind of back up their uh, their fight on the front lines. And I feel like uh, to me, one of the, the most influential people from our, uh, you know, our lifetime and what will be talked about, I, I feel like uh, in a lot of that critical race theory that's taught in schools and, and it is Colin Kaepernick and everything that he did, because what you were referring to designed from MIT, uh, when you were talking about that, I was just thinking about Colin Kaepernick and everything he yes. went through uh, and, and being a veteran that lost my leg in Iraq. And when all of that stuff came out, uh, I, I just remember a lot of people, uh, just assuming when they came up to me, like, oh, I can't believe he's disrespecting the flag. And my my thought process the whole time during that, uh, that he was doing exactly the thing that I lost my leg for. I, I lost my leg defending freedom, which uh, is questionable, too. That's a whole different topic. But, but this whole idea that uh, you go and serve your country for your freedom. So if that's what that is, and I lost my leg for that freedom, then... I gave this leg for Colin Kaepernick to take a knee during the national anthem to raise awareness to a a system that is riddled with institutional racism and just to bring awareness to police brutality. Um, and so to me, he did exactly what he was supposed to. And you still kind of see him ostracized in the NFL community, especially, but you don't really hear about him. And I, I kind of feel like he's going to be one of those people in history books in the future where it was like this is an example of of where we came of how police brutality became a a hot topic and this is how the reform and the the society that we live in now this is those issues just like when martin luther king uh 
they walked across the bridge and they filmed it and they saw these black men getting beaten and attacked by dogs and and it was uh, there for them in their face and things started changing so i i don't know do you agree with that and colin kaepernick's importance in this whole movement in the current uh i, I would say the current civil rights movement of our day yeah no i i i, I think that that uh, Colin certainly, um, uh, I would say, kicked off another uh, another phase, you know, of this movement. And uh, as, absolutely, uh, yeah. and and I wanted to add one thing to that. I apologize. Uh, and one of the things that was said about him during all of this is that he wasn't doing anything but taking a knee. And and yes, for those that didn't know, he's started so many different things. He goes and buys new suits for uh, young black men to go out to their first interview. He, ha- he teaches classes, he pays for classes to be taught so that young black men know their rights with police yeah. officers. These are things that need to be done for that community and he's doing those. So he's not just, he didn't just take a knee and run off it's and called slacktivism. away from the NFL and, and keep all millions of, all the millions of dollars. He's literally, he's just not in the forefront. He's in behind the scenes now and nobody wants to talk about it, but he's yeah. still doing these things to drive this, this conversation and push for this change. Yes. You know, and, uh, you know, and we need, we need to, to support him. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> we had another example of someone, although, you know, she was constantly in the news and remains in the news, but Stacey Abrams, I mean, Stacey Abrams, you know, she, you know, she, did all of the grassroots uh, uh, organizing, you know, beating on doors and on and on in order to get those two seats to flip to Democrats in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. She did the hard Absolutely. work. Absolutely. Yes. And we need more of the Colin Kaepernick and, 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 the, and the Stacey Abrams. You know, Absolutely, and and I would say AOC as well uh, AOC, from a political standpoint. Just this time, where all of the the voting rights are being, you know, being uh, attacked, and uh, uh, you know, we need to have that type of of movement. So that's the one aspect. But I tell you, there is one thing that does bother me, and that is we have a lot of wealthy blacks in America. They could, if they wanted to, recreate Black Wall Street if they got together and did it. I I absolutely agree with that. While on the the one hand, you know, uh, I am critical of you know, those whites who would seek to continue to enslave us and deny our rights and on and on, I am also critical of my brothers and sisters who have the wherewithal. Okay? Now, they don't have to, you know, walk across the, the bridge with Martin Luther and John Lewis and be beaten, etc., and end up in jail. They can take, you know, the resources. The have and recreate the equivalent of the Black Wall Street, mm-hmm. which would create a lot of jobs, would change the way uh, many uh, black people are, are, you know, are viewed, etc. Uh, and uh, you know, we're not doing that. 
And I have said oftentimes is that freedom is something you fight for. When you're given your freedom, you don't appreciate it. Absolutely. The Lewis's of the day, the Martin Luther Kings of the day, the Malcolm X's of the day, etc. And those of us who lived through those times, okay, we appreciate what they got for us. Mm-hmm. I think the next generation that followed us who did not live through those times don't appreciate it. And like mm-hmm. all of America, they don't quite know their history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I go back to my frustration as to where is the leadership, where is the, 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 the financial equivalent of the Martin Luther King financially who brings all of these blacks of tremendous wealth together and say we are going to create something, you know, we're going to recreate Black Wall Street and do something because if they do that, it will change the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's I, I, I absolutely I, I wanted to bring up uh, to Doctor that we uh, we had actually just given a stat on one of our uh, pre- on the redlining show. We discussed uh, how long the dollar stays in the black community. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's the by comparison, the, the dollar stays in the Jewish community the longest at 28 days. Um, and in the within the black community, uh, the dollar stays within the black community for six hours. And, and you see that and you you ask that that I think that's a great question. Why why have we not started seeing them create banks owned by black people? Why haven't we seen them create um, infrastructure like that and, and really build on that black community? And let's really start addressing the fact that a dollar uh, in, that go, goes into the black community only circulates within it for six hours. And actually something, something that I've noticed. I didn't know statistic, but that's incredible. Yeah, that's crazy. That's everything. Something that I've noticed within the last couple of years when you're talking about affluent black people or people like Colin Kaepernick who does who did put a lot on the line to 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 make a statement like he did I've heard a lot of people white people that have been critical of Colin Kaepernick saying well he you know he didn't even grow up in the ghetto he grew up affluent or at least upper middle class say what it doesn't matter yeah and that's that's where he grew up that's where he identifies himself and right identifies himself and and i guess the argument that i make with those people is so just because he's not in a impoverished situation and he never was like he just needs to wash his hands of it anymore and like just stay out of it but isn't when you have power and you have resources and maybe fame isn't that putting it to good use isn't by bringing attention to these issues, not when you're struggling and you don't really have resources to, to bring attention to these issues. And it's the same with, you know, I've, I've heard people who are critical or make fun of white people who go out and, and were protesting George Floyd and, you know, saying that they, they just need to mind their own business because they don't understand what, what the black community is going through anyway. Well, again, it's like, I think that that, you mentioned before the white people who participated during the civil rights era and were even yes. Um, yes. Uh, had crowd control placed on them. Like 
it's it's when you do have that privilege and you do have power and you do have influence that you put that to use in a good way. You don't just sit on the sidelines and be like, "Hey, you guys got this right? Okay, all right, cool." The the, the minority can the minority can never succeed and achieve without having allies in the majority. There's there's no better way to yes, fix. I mean, the, that's the absolutely issue. correct, and I do not know why people don't understand. That's as simple as that. Yeah. What you said, it's just absolutely correct. Right. You know, unless you have uh, supporters from the, uh, amongst the majority group, you remain a minority. You know, shouting and screaming, and uh, uh, you know, and demonstrating, etc. If you want to move beyond that, you have to have supporters uh, from the majority group who who feel the way you you feel, who seek to empathize, and who are focused on equity for all. Absolutely. And, and as somebody who is an ally, and I wear Black Lives Matter stuff, and, and I love when Black people come up to me in public and they say thank you, because yes. uh, I, I don't do it for that. I do it because no, I, but, do but, it, I do it know, more for the white people. They to recognize see the importance of what you're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. And I do it more for the white people to see me. And let's yes. make this normal. Let's normalize standing up for people. It has nothing to do with the fact that I've never experienced those struggles, but it does have to do with the fact that I'm a human being and I can empathize and think, wow, if I had to experience that, I don't think I would enjoy my life as much as I do, or I don't think I would have the opportunities that I do. And for anybody that can't step back and do that, you just lack basic empathy as a human being, mm -hmm. I think. Or just ignorance. Mason, yeah. it is, it, it is a very important what has happened to the humanity of the American. An important question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, especially if yes. you, you know, if you're if you're claiming that you're Christian or, yes. or or what else? Because I mean, that's I feel is a very fundamental tenet of Christianity, and it seems like a lot of Christians just kind of rest on their laurels because they live comfortable lives and just don't want to get their hands dirty. Really, right? What else you got, Chris? Uh, there's. I, I, there's no way that nationalism can ever go with <laughs> loving Absolutely, my neighbor. Those right. two things can never, yes. they, yeah. they can't coexist. You your neighbor is be, also on the other side of the planet. Your, your neighbor is on the south, southern side of the border. Your neighbor is on the border in a cage. Those are, that's my exact point is, uh, you, and especially as a Christian, you're supposed to have brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's not Americans. That's everybody around the world. And I just kind of wish they would deconstruct this this nationalistic America first mentality. I mean, Christ himself said to his disciples, you know, other, fo other followers I have that you know not of. Mm -hmm. And he made it very clear to them that mm -hmm. they were not the only ones. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Exactly. I, I don't have any other further questions, doctor. I really want to appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I took away a lot of uh, uh, unique perspectives and as well as learned a lot of stuff uh, through this. I really appreciate your time and uh, applaud uh, just everything that you've accomplished in your life, uh, both academically and, and, you know, in your personal life as well and, and dealing with um, that struggle and becoming a part of this culture and really doing everything you can to help uh, advance creating a more inclusive 
uh, society. So thank you. Yeah. And well, I also, thank you. I also want to make sure that we, uh, mention again, your book, defining moments of a free man from a black stream. And where, I mean, I know that we can find the book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, where else can we, we, we stay up to date on what you, your, you know, your activities, what you have coming up and any other things that we can look forward to. Yeah. You can uh, go to a free man, black stream, uh, dot com. Uh, uh, or safehavendialogues.com. Okay. And you're also on Instagram, of course. And I'm on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. All right. Great. Awesome. And, and I wanted to, I actually just learned this recently, uh, that when the slaves were freed, they didn't want to keep their surnames. And so yes. they, they got to pick their own names. And this is such a cool fact uh, because I served with a, a guy who had this last name. Uh, the most common name that was chosen by them was Freeman. And uh, so Freeman. And, and oh. so I, that was very interesting to me because I didn't know that. And again, let's, that's something that should be taught in, in, in school. So let me, let me tell you one thing before we go about the title of my memoir, Defining Moments of a Free Man from a Black Stream. And in my book, I tell how I learned it. It turns out that that is the meaning of my name. Frank is Celtic and means free man. And Douglas is Scottish and means from a black street. So that is so cool. And in the book, I, I, I tell, I didn't know that, but when I was at Xerox, a, a Scotsman, one of the technicians stopped me one day and told me that. And that was important to me because, you know, around that time, you remember, that any blacks who were involved in the movement and saw themselves as revolutionaries were changing their names, you know, uh, Cassius Clave, you know, yeah. became Muhammad Ali. You know, Muhammad yeah. Ali, yes, yes. That's Muhammad really cool. X, you know? And I was always on a lot of pressure to change my name, uh, you know, to an African name. And I always said, I don't know from which part of Africa my four parents came, so I don't have a basis. So when this this man told me this, I was so happy. I don't need to change my name because <laughs> you already yeah awesome. you already have a suitable name for that. I love that's it. it. That's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty special, Doctor Douglas. And I I'm kind of envious because I don't think that my first name has anything to do with anything except for maybe my conception chance. So, <laughs> <laughs> but again, thank you very much, Doctor Douglas. This has been great, okay, and uh, your your time I'm sure is valuable. So thank you so much for giving us so much of it. My pleasure. Again, yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right.